Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Rishi Sunak says the golden age of relations between China and the UK is over. At home, the golden age of relationships between Rishi Sunak and the Tory party never really got started. With more and more Tories abandoning ship before the next election, does Sunak have the credibility to get tough on the international stage? Plus, last year's census data has been released, and for the first time, it shows that England and Wales are minority Christian countries. What else do the numbers say about what kind of country we are now? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we explore the politics of the office Christmas party. Let's meet the panel. First up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hi. Uh, something not very Christmassy for you. <laughs> the online harms bill is making its way through Parliament. It's been tweaked that it no longer restricts harmful but legal content. Former Culture Secretary Nadine Doris is not happy. Um, why is this so controversial? So, so is you'd that... be tempted to think that's I know, a good right? Thing, but it's not necessarily no. <laughs> that I'm going to agree with Nadine Doris. So, um, what's the issue here? Well, in, so initially, the complaint from libertarians was that it, the bill went too far. Um, now, the argument is from protection groups, you know, advocate groups, that it doesn't go far enough, and that might encourage you to think that they got it broadly right, that they're somewhere in the middle, but that's not the oh. case. Because there's something that the first position and the second position have in common. The government is basically trying to absent itself from having to regulate in this area. In the first case, by saying, um, you sort it out, companies, you decide what's harmful and tell us. And in the second um, case, by not regulating at all. The, the point is, they have to step in and regulate. Um, Tech companies get away with an enormous amount of stuff just by waving their hands and saying, it's technology, it's very complicated. That's nonsense. They get away with releasing products that are not adequately um, inspected for quality in the first place and then not monitored for problems afterwards. And you would never accept that in any other sector except tech. The government needs to step in. It needs to grow a spine and say what content it thinks is harmful and make it unlawful. That's the bottom line. Ian Dunt is my co-host on Origin Story. Next episode of Series 2, Fascism, is out soon. And he's author of the upcoming How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Hi, Ian. Hello. I'm a Celebrity is over. Former footballer Jill Scott won, but long shot Matt Hancock ended up third with 20% of the vote. Uh, We've said before that he should never have been booked in the first place. Um, many people have said this. But did he succeed in rehabilitating his reputation? Probably a little bit, right? I mean, I suppose he's just exacerbated or made things more extreme on either side. Certainly the people that disliked him now dislike him even more. But he, I mean, just by getting that far, clearly he managed to soften a few hearts of the people that were watching. So I suppose he'll go home and think that was sort of job well done. That wasn't such a bad thing. But I just, and I feel myself becoming like more old fashioned every, maybe just more of a grumpy middle-aged man every single day, because I just sort of instinctively feel outraged that there's just, we have a situation where basically elected politicians are now going into the jungle so they can eat an animal's genitals with their bare hands. And it's going to turn out to be actually like quite a canny career move. But I think ultimately, <laughs> if he says back, he'll probably think this whole thing turned out all right for me. Would, would Gladstone have done that? I don't think he would have. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think, think I mean, maybe, maybe Peel. You can imagine Peel <laughs> eating an animal's genitals in his bare hands. Prime ministers of the past who might have gone on Iris <laughs> <laughs> but isn't this going to be quite weak? Because he's promoting a book about how he uh, you know, did his best during the pandemic. And this, this doesn't seem to cement the image of him in the public mind as, as a serious, conscientious man. 
Would that be sort of self-defeating or is just any book publicity good publicity? No, but I suppose what he was going for was that whole, I've been through a dark night of the soul. I'm sorry. He's, he's not talking in the language of sort of gravitas and seriousness, is he? He's talking in the sort of soap opera language of reality TV and of kind of like moral reincarnation through the expression of grief at your own actions, you know, in front of the public. And I, evidently people feel that some of that was convincing, whereas it just made me want to throw up in my mouth. Uh, yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that he had a rough pandemic. <laughs> yes, for him, for heart, him. Heart, heartbreaking. R Rachel Wearmouth is Deputy Political Editor of The New Statesman. Uh, hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Very exciting. Um, in Labour, uh, Blue Labourish Claire Ainsley was recently moved from Executive Director of Policy to overseeing Labour's 2024 manifesto. Now she's moved on altogether, uh, replaced by former Head of Economic Policy, Rav Athwal. Does this mean anything for the direction of the party and sort of policy priorities? Um, I, w I wouldn't necessarily see it in those terms. I think they're just trying to um, position themselves towards the next general election and they see the best chance of them winning as big as possible to be on the economy and not necessarily anything related to culture issues, not not right. not necessarily anything related to levelling up agenda mm. kind of stuff. It's all going to be fighting on the economy. So they've picked Rav Athwal, who was previously Rachel Reeves's head of policy. So um, that's why he's been put in there. But it's also kind of when you look at the who is the executive director of policy, mm. who's kind of above Rav in seniority. It's a, it's a guy called Stuart Ingham who is a long-term Keir Starmer aide. He kind of, he's been with him since he first went for the leadership, basically, and, and has worked in his office previously. So it's kind of shoring up his position and his power base, really. Well, I was looking up some articles um, from when she was first appointed in 2020, and Ainsley uh, was described as Starmer's Dominic Cummings. Um, I don't think that's really how that turned out. Does such a thing, <laughs> does such a thing exist? I mean, is there a, uh, is there a, a mega mind? figure in the Labour Party like that? Um, there's actually many kind of talented people who do a lot of work behind the scenes for Labour. There's um, there's a, a really good guy who does their attack and rebuttal called Paul Ovenden, who's been with the party quite a long time. Um, so a lot of the stories that you'll attack stories that you'll see placed in you know, um, publications like the Sunday Times. Paul is one of the people who does some of the thinking behind that. Um, and you have their campaign director, a guy called Morgan McSweeney, who we've written about in the New Statesman, yeah. um, who's kind of doing their big plan and sort of their march towards the general election and all their organising work behind the scenes. I think when this was written also, the idea of having your own Dominic Cummings yeah. meant something a bit different. <laughs> I think that might have been a pre-Durham Castle uh, analogy. <laughs> First, uh, a word from Alex. Before we start a festive public service announcement, our live show in London on Monday the 12th of December is now sold out. But if you missed out, or if you're in what Ian calls not London, you can watch the whole thing on Zoom. Our lovely Patreon backers can register to hear Dorian, Ian, Naomi and myself sorting through the lumps of coal in Britain's political Christmas stocking live on stage at 21 Soho in, well, Soho. Just search Patreon, Oh God, What Now podcast to sign up and register for the Zoom. And if you're stuck for Christmas gifts, don't forget our extremely desirable range of liberal elite merchandise at podmarket.co.uk. Who wouldn't want a tofu-eating wokerati t-shirt or an Oh God, What a Mess tea towel? Order by December the 8th and you'll get your stuff in time for the holidays. Visit podmarket.co.uk. 
www.qvc.co.uk and make Christmas woke again. <laughs> Alice, have you ever been on QVC? <laughs> Should I be? <laughs> you have a very persuasive voice. Like, I'm getting my credit card out now. <laughs> make Christmas walk again. That's a great catchphrase. I'm, I'm nicking that. I'm just imagining a thought for the day. Was, was Jesus, in a way, not the original <laughs> woke? woke. <laughs> Rishi Sunak found himself in comfortable surroundings on Monday when he addressed the Lord Mayor's Banquet. It was his first major foreign policy speech as Prime Minister and he promised robust pragmatism in dealing with Russia and China. But at home, a new Tory divide emerges almost every week. He's recently faced rebellions on housing, the online harms bill, and onshore wind farms. Um, Ian, how much does this contradiction matter? Like, can he strut on Russia and China if he can't keep his own house in order? Well, I mean, A, I don't, I don't think it would matter that much. I mean, you can't, you know, there would be no strong international prime ministers if it was contingent on not having any divisions <laughs> in your party at, at mm. home. But the thing is that it's not even really a strong position that he's putting internationally. It was just this kind of wishy-washy nothingness of kind of almost sort of pantomime centrism. So it was, you know, the, the China stuff was, well, you know, there's these guys over here, the the you know the David Cameron guys, Golden Age, and then there's these guys over here that want to have a new Cold War. And me, I'm just someone in the middle. <laughs> like, well, what does the middle mean? It's like, well, there's absolutely no details of that whatsoever. So it it was just nothing. It was like a, a bowl of music. Well, he hasn't talked much about foreign policy before. You know, it was it was remarked upon in the leadership contest, um, which remember he did lose. Uh, <laughs> he was interested in uh, very interested in economics, kind of making a, like a half-assed effort on on culture stuff. And I don't really remember much about foreign policy at all. Is there anything here that you could call uh, an agenda? No, not really. I mean, he he does mention the Indo-Pacific, you know, trade deal that he wants to be part of, um, and that isn't. I mean, that isn't. I mean, it's 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 batshit. <laughs> Uh, because he, you know, mentions it immediately after saying we're never going to align with European rules. So basically, we're going to put our trading posture entirely reliant on countries that are as far away from us as humanly possible. <laughs> so obviously, it, it's not sensible, but you know, but, but it was a concrete idea. And to be honest, it was you were like a drowning man in the uh, drowning man in the desert. What kind of fucking metaphor is that? You're like a man <laughs> in the desert looking for water. You know, yeah. so so you're just like, oh, fine. At least you've just said a concrete thing. I mean, the problem that he has right is. Because of Brexit, there is no traditional diplomatic route for Britain to express its influence. All it's left with is sort of soft power and really hard power. So it's got the soft power of, you know, cultural whatever, but you can't build a foreign policy on fucking, you know, Downton Abbey and the Premier League. You need more than that. Mm. And then you've got the really hard power of Ukraine, like military operations, military assistance towards people. And that bit, we, we really do still have. And I think we've used really sensibly. What we've lost is the stuff in the middle, the, the basic sort of diplomatic influence and that kind of weight when it comes to trade, when it comes to politics. And without that there, everything necessarily feels pretty vacuous because ultimately it is. Do you know that Liz Truss would have sustained your metaphor because I think she was inept enough to drown in a desert. <laughs> it's very hard. But I think she could do it. Uh, there was uh, this was discussed last week. You know the sort of frantic backtracking on on, on talk of a Swiss style relationship with the EU. Which and what I was ask about is does this show how limited he is by backbenchers? That if there's anything he floats that annoys the sort of ERG or 
you know, similar right-wing backbenchers, then it's not going to happen. Like, does he seem like somebody that's always looking over his shoulder on this issue? I mean, he definitely, definitely does. And he seems nervous and touchy. And he doesn't look like he has either the intellectual or the moral substance to pursue a project, regardless of what the parliamentary party thinks. But to be honest, I mean, he, he does have the record on Brexit. So it's not surprising <clears throat> he doesn't want to go near it. But it feels like there's an emptiness even to his Brexit story, you know? Like, it's quite hard to get a sense of why he really voted for Brexit, like, and why he was supportive of it. He's never really come across like a, like a really passionate, true believer. It sounds like he's reading out his lines. And yet his record is more consistent mm. than, you know, Theresa May, arguably Boris Johnson, certainly Liz Truss. So even there, you kind of, it's quite hard to get a handle on him. Ultimately, I mean, it's been, you know, several weeks now that we've had him. And outside of the, I wish taxes were lower, we're going to have a sound economic policy. It's really quite <laughs> hard to tell what principles the guy actually had. But it's kind of striking just as soon as he'd made this this big speech on on foreign policy that one of the first people who came out to criticise him was former leader Ian Duncan Smith, who <laughs> yeah. kind yeah. of, you know, had his own problems with um, with rebellions when he, when he was leader. So, uh, you know, it's surprising just how little loyalty there is for him. You know, there are so mm. many groups now in... in who have just who are it's kind of like an every man for themselves kind of party at the moment where everybody's thinking about how to how they can best demonstrate to their constituents that they should be re-elected and that's their only priority there's very little loyalty to Sunak personally and some of that is because yeah I think as Ian says he's you can't point to much that demonstrates a real depth of his politics. Well, this is what I wondered about, because older listeners, you know, may remember when it, you seem to have quite a clear sense of who the camps were in the Tory party. So you had uh, under Thatcher, the dries and the wets. And then with Major, you had him getting, you know, the Eurosceptics. Uh, is it possible to say like who the camps are now? But because we've had so much churn of prime ministers, like, is it is it just a kind of mess of, of sort of mini factions? I, oh God, there's... I could point to some that kind of have started to group together for various different reasons. I mean, like you could kind of look at, for example, the Blue Wall Conservatives who are, you know, worried about the Lib Dem threat and are going to set themselves against any development that might put them up for criticism against the Lib Dem. Um, then you have, you know, the ERG that, you know, not, there's going to be no solution on the Northern Ireland Protocol that they're ever going to be happy with. And then you have people who are kind of frustrated with the Conservative Party's um, aversion to economic growth you know people like um simon clark for example who was trying to push this big rebellion against the onshore wind ban they're just separating into so many different groups yeah. now that yeah. they're kind of ungovernable um, it's almost vote by vote isn't it it's vote by vote yeah. so are these domestic splits that i mentioned earlier are these all issues that genuinely divide the party like would cause trouble for any pm or does the fact that there's a big argument about onshore wind stem from a perceived weakness. I think that massively ex exacerbates it, doesn't it? So, because it's sort of you, you lose credit with the voters, and then you lose credit with your own party. And I think there's a difference between being a couple of points behind in the polls and then twenty points behind, because then that just makes every different MP just assess what they should be doing with their time if they want to hang on to their seat. Mm -hmm. Um, Alex, Rachel brought up Ian Duncan Smith's criticism on China there, basically accusing him of being an appeaser. Um, Given the power that China has, the, the, you know, it was discussed when the sanctions were applied on Russia that yeah. you couldn't do the same thing to China because, you know, they, they're so much more economically powerful. So what do the China hawks want? Apart from, you know, Sunak does mention um, calling out abuses in Xinjiang, containment of freedom in Hong Kong, he said. Mm. So what does being really tough on China mean? 
I think because it, it's been, for them, it's set up as a binary, okay? So they want basically hostility. They want disengagement because, for two reasons. One, because it's based on a sort of romantic notion of colonialism, which dictates that Britain has a lot more weight to throw around than it actually has, mm. like it will make a difference. Mm. And the second, which is related to the first, is there's the kind of aspirations, the dream of a sort of Kanzuk um, coalition of nations where you have USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Anglosphere basically coming together. And because China has such poor relations at the moment with Australia and um, America, they see any friendly overture towards China as a betrayal of our true allies. So it's ideological for them, but it's wrong. I mean, ultimately, you know, China is so big, we need a level of engagement with it. There's no doubting that, that it's better to have it in the tent than out of the tent. And so, I mean, it's important to realize that Sunak, be, despite the tough rhetoric, it's a warming of relations towards China, you know. It's something like over two years since a UK prime minister had a, a sort of sideline bilateral with um, the Chinese premier before he did it um, in Indonesia, I think it was. Um, so it is, it's tough rhetoric to disguise the fact that actually the, the position has softened. It is too big to ignore mm. and certainly too big to be hostile towards, especially after you've made the tragic geopolitical error of leaving the European Union. Maybe within the European Union, we could have influenced a large block that matters to stand against China. Outside, I mean, it, nothing. We're a gnat. Quick sidebar, you, you've been <laughs> talking to some um, China experts with Bunker Daily. Yeah. Obviously, there's there's been quite some excitement about these anti-lockdown protests, which, I mean, that has a different valence over mm, there. Mm. Biggest protest since Tiananmen Square. And in fact, Kate Adie was on the radio saying, you know, bigger than at least initially, the, the, the Tiananmen Square ones were. Yeah. But given the power, the immense sort of quasi-totalitarian power of China, did these experts say that this was likely to, to go anywhere or is this something that is going to be quashed? I mean, it's important that it's happening at all mm -hmm. in, a, in a country like yeah. China. And so it is significant. And I think it's significant because um, of the flaws it exposes, because it's not really about the pandemic. The pandemic has brought into sharp relief problems that were there before. Basically, China tried to replace its exports with domestic demand, and that failed. Alibaba is in its fifth year of um, losses. Um, and with that was a promise to expand the middle class. And so that has failed too. And I think people are getting angry. They're getting angry at the government. And this is not something that the Communist Party can ignore because it is a sort of, it's a bubbling, wide base anger that's there. Mm. And, and I think those are the little bursts you're seeing now, the first little bursts of that. So I think it's very significant. Um, Ian, back to the UK. Many Tory MPs are announcing they won't stand in the next election, including younger MPs like Alok Sharma, Chris Skidmore and Dehenna Davison. Um, do people quit 
like this unless they expect to lose their seat. They just want to, they just want to, they think, oh, I could win, but I just want to try something new. <laughs> I mean, it's not unheard of, but generally, if you're seeing this trend, lots of young MPs not standing for the election, it tends to mean that they think that they're going to lose and, and lose quite badly. So, no, it's, it's pretty grim. And you can understand why, like, just look again, looking at that polling, you know, on, on, what's extraordinary, right, is you, you have the polling, trust comes in, and, and I think most of us expected that it that it would change in some significant way. And it really didn't, even before the, you know, absolute catastrophic Harakiri fuck up. It wasn't it wasn't budging. And she was expressing a very particular kind of, you know, sort of messianic zeal like Toryism. Mm. Then you have Sunak come in, but it didn't really budge. It still looks very severe. And he's projecting a completely different kind of Toryism, you know, much more professional, wears a suit, sound finance, all of that kind of stuff. So whichever way you go. It doesn't seem to budge the dial. And then, I mean, look, at I did the papers yesterday and it was just fucking, it was fucking extraordinary that on a day that was not necessarily a bad day for, for Rishi Sunak, hmm. it was still like every item of news would be catastrophic if you're in government. <laughs> it's just like nurses strike, ambulance strike, rail strike, prices up in the shop. And then it prisons, ended. Prisons running out of space. Extraordinary. Right. No, but, but this is the bit that got me was after all that, the bit that was like the light relief was, oh, and you're not going to be able to get a turkey for Christmas. <laughs> it was just like, oh, you guys are fucked. Like, really fucked. And I think that that's what they're looking at. I'm just thinking, fuck this for a game of soldiers. I'm out of here. When you think about sort of the end of Labour's long, long, long period in government, mm. they would have, they had these conferences at the end where Gordon Brown got up and would be like, Sure, start. You know, it would list all of the achievements mm. of the Labour government. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what achievements the Conservative Party would There's genuinely would genuinely be able to say, yeah. and they must be kind of that must make must make them feel a certain kind of just feeling you know demoralised, and you kind of think they're probably looking at a long period in opposition. And a lot of them probably don't fancy a long period in opposition where they're going to have to repeatedly be told how terrible they've been. And I think some of them have been really poorly. I mean, Alex Sharma being an an example, Mm, mm. been really poorly treated by the party, demoted again and again for effectively doing a decent job. I mean, why would he hang around for the ritual humiliation? Um, Rachel, what I find weird, I think, on social media and even among friends is that the, the only people that seem to think that the Tories are going to win the next election are very anxious people on the left. Yes. That just go, oh, I remember 92 or, oh, they could still blow it. But, but I'm looking at, at how the Tories, and obviously politics is unpredictable and so on, but, I mean, when you look at the way the Tories are, are behaving and thinking, do you feel that they have resigned themselves to defeat? And, and if so... What happens over the next two years when a party thinks it's over? I can't quite remember what happened to, to major a, in the mid-90s, for example. It's a really good question, isn't it? Because, I mean, have they resigned themselves to defeat? I think that, I mean, I was sat in PMQs today in the chamber and it feels like every week that Rishi Sunak just looks that little bit smaller and you mm. get the whole, like, way more yeah. kind of... <laughs> and that just, it's kind of like you doth protest too much here. It's kind of like they're trying so hard to pretend it's okay. And I think when you look at the 2019 election, that was such a huge, huge victory. And after such a long period in office... So I don't know. I don't. I feel like some have accepted it, yeah. and and others haven't. But I mean, they've got to have a legislative agenda. <laughs> That's kind of well, you know, <laughs> and, and, they, and they can't currently agree on anything or, or unite around 
anything. Well, my so f- I wonder if we might get to an election soon. And nobody agrees with me on this. But I wonder if we might get to an election sooner than, mm. than 2024. Everyone assumes really? it will be... From your you know, lips, Rachel. <laughs> if this downward trajectory in the polls continues, I mean, it might benefit them to go earlier. Well, finally, my fear, I suppose, is that... Um, Starmer says he's two weeks taking his party, two weeks to take on vested interests. He's really pushing this. And, of course, it's going to remind a lot of people of, of late period uh, John Major. And, of course, if you're being called weak a lot, you really want to show you're strong. And he does seem to be taking harder lines on migration, on strikes, on the Just Stop Oil protests. So might we see him going so far in the other way just to prove that he's a, a hard man? I think that's already happening, isn't it? I think when you look at sort of what everything that happened with Suella Braverman and her whole invasion rhetoric, mm. that, that alarms a lot of, you know, kind of Remainer, yeah. sympathetic con- conservatives who would be naturally minded to support Rishi Sunak. Yeah, so he keeps kind of, keeps making mistakes. And I think he's going to have to get some stuff right before long. May I add something? There yeah. was a, a piece by Greg Hands late last week on joining the CPTPP, which was really quite extraordinary because he didn't advance an economic argument. He said, if we join the CPTPP, it will make it much harder for Labour to get closer to the EU. Mm. I have never seen a cabinet minister make such a clear admission that they'll probably be out of power in a couple of years mm. and oh, that I their see. policies are sort of scorched earth policy. Let's button down the hatches <laughs> to make it as difficult for the next people as possible. That was the... There's a lot of that going on there right now. And that, that in and of itself is a political risk. Mm. If, if I think if the public looks at the governing party just using government to make it more difficult for the people that are very, very popular in their eyes. That That's going to be a problem for them, right? As, as I understand it, um, the, the government's not agreeing to give the Labour Party access to civil servants um, to try and kind of plan what would be the next stage if Labour did take power, and that's because presumably they'd like to make it as difficult as possible for Keir Starmer if he does, does manage to become PM. Ian, what do you think, finally, on, on, on Rachel's theory here, that if they keep on going down, that they may, in fact, decide it's better to go early? Maybe I'm just addicted to chaos. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just need another relax. And, you know, it's stuff to write about. I mean, it's good. <laughs> the sadomasochist analysis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not impossible, right? But then it's always the thing that... It, the, 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 the issue that you always have is the incentive on the prime minister and be- and because of the recent legislation it is just the prime minister to think you know i'm i'm probably going to lose let's trigger it and that exact point is always going to be quite a hard moment to to come to so I, I, my money is still on 2024 but I, I wonder if i've just convinced myself of this in a bid to protect my own sense of sanity well, i know that the labor's delaying organizing around its around the sort of boundary changed um, constituencies because they're they're kind of a factoring in that it could happen early next year. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. This week's But Your Emails is on a similar theme. Um, remember, you can put your questions to the panel when you back us on Patreon. This week, Guy Buckland says, the track and trace app fiasco, lockdown delays, Owen Patterson, prorogation of parliament, the oven-ready Brexit deal. This is his version of We Didn't Start the Fire by Vinnie Joel. (laughs) Um, I follow this stuff, and even I'm forgetting the finer details of these myriad clusterfucks. Is the greatest barrier to overthrowing this incompetent government the public's collectively short and limited memories? 
Now, Alex, I'm not sure about this assumption. Do mm. you think the public does have a short memory for this stuff? Um, maybe for the specifics, but the point is the, that all this stuff kind of accumulates. It's like a pile of rubbish that stinks over there. You don't have to remember precisely what's on the pile. It's just the stench gets worse yeah. the more stuff you add to it. And in a way, it's actually the opposition's job to absorb all that stuff into a narrative and remind people. I mean, that's that's got to be their electoral strategy, right? If they can't do that, they, they won't win the next election. But... Um, all of that is push factors. And I think m my issue with the Labour Party at the moment is that it's being very coy about providing enough pull factors. But n no, I mean, people may not remember exactly what happened around Durham Castle, but they do remember that there was rule breaking and sort of general lawlessness. Well, there's a, there's a famous quote from James Callaghan, so famous that I can't remember exactly what he said. Um, but it was about this acceptance that, you know, actually things were turning in the right direction before the 79 election. But he says sometimes there is just a kind of, there is a change in the wind. Mm. And I, I wonder whether that's, that's your garbage heap theory well, as well. I mean, I've, I've told you this before, a, a very seasoned campaigner that I spoke to, who's worked on everyone's campaigns from Jimmy Carter onwards, told me once that the only slogan with which an opposition gets rid of a government is time for change. Yeah. It may take many forms, but it's always that slogan. If that slogan manages to penetrate through, then the government is toast. Rachel, one thing that struck me bringing up that good old Owen Patterson there was, was that it didn't seem like the biggest, looking back, the biggest deal yet. That was where it began to turn mm. and it's never turned back. Mm. It doesn't matter if people remember the individual components. I think there have been quite a few huge moments where the 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 Conservatives pulled right into taking a huge dive and might have recovered slightly, but then the, this, yeah. the last couple of years have been just like punctuated with these big, big, big falls in support. One of them would be, you know, Liz Truss's big, big moments, mm. um, <laughs> the, the mini budget. But I think, I don't know if, I don't know if Labour will spend a long time over the next two years talking about their own policies. I think they'll probably try to just destroy the Conservative Party brand as much as possible before setting out their stall at the last mm. at the last moment. Yeah. Ian, do you think that there was still, despite all of this stuff, there was still kind of a, a like a way back before the not so mini budget? Like like was that the real turning point or did you the, the did you detect the stink earlier than that? I don't know, maybe if something had worked, maybe but it was really striking the way that she just couldn't recover the polling. But then how was she ever going to do that? She was Liz Truss, you know, all the way through the leadership. <laughs> and you was, looked at her. She and did the you, best with what she had. Right. Well, you, just, you just looked at her and thought, you're not really going to, you're not really going to elect Liz Truss, are you? You've gone completely <laughs> mad. And then, you know, so, so I suppose you sort of shoot yourself in the foot in that way, regardless of what she'd actually done, just simply because of her sort of presentational deficiencies. Alex is right. It's it's that emotional sense of the kind of the the broad morality of a party, I think, that permeates. And you forget mm. the details, but I don't even remember the details. I had to research something about like some, you know, part of the, the sort of parliamentary battles during Brexit the other day. And I was reading my own article about Dominic Greig's amendment. And I was like, what yeah. the fuck is this? <laughs> I didn't. I, I mean, if somebody totally said what, to that. if somebody said what, what was the let win? Gun to my head. What was the let win amendment? 
And I'd just be like... The malt house compromise. Yeah. I, I think Rachel felt seen. That <laughs> The Office for National Statistics has released the first batch of data from last year's census. The headline statistic is for the first time England and Wales are minority Christian nations. Since the last census in 2011, there are 6 million fewer Christians, which takes them below 50% of the population for the first time. The proportion of people stating no religion has shot up to 37%. Go us. Ian, our own Naomi Smith has welcomed the news of more widespread disbelief, non, not disbelief, non-belief, um, <laughs> as progress. How, how do you feel? Yeah, um, it, look, it is. But, but we need to remember the fact that this process has been happening for a long time and has been sort of almost systematically uh, um, underrepresented in census data. So, I mean, the reason that we started asking this question was, I think, red warning on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2001 when the Muslim Council of Britain went to the census and went, look, we, we, need to, we want to know how many Muslims there are in the country. We can't do it on the basis of sort of nationality or ethnicity because that's not the way it works. So can we ask this mm. question? And oh, the question right. was yeah. framed very specifically. It was, what is your religion? It's a very leading question. It presumes that you have a religion. And it posits a very sort of weak relationship with it. Now, the purpose of that, and this is what the census were trying to do, was to come up with self-identification, but just how people think and talk about themselves. Typically speaking, when people say that, they say things like, well, my parents were Christians, or I live in a Christian country, these sort of generic sort of slush of culture and sort of heritage and things like that. So when we don't ask that question, if you look at the British Social Attitude Survey, which is much, much tougher, it says, um, do you consider yourself to have a religion that you belong to? So a very strong association with a religion, and it doesn't presume that you have one at the beginning. Then we were getting numbers like this 10 years ago. Okay? Underneath the census data, there's been a real industry from religious organizations to use that propped up sense of religious belief to ensure that they're on thought for the day, to ensure that they get to teach religion in schools, to ensure that there's no constitutional change, to make sure that the bishops stay in the House of Lords. This great kind of vestigial lump of, of religious activity in the state and in our society is propped up by that census data. So to be honest, this is a long time coming to fall below the 50% mark. And in objective reality, in the actual you know life of this country, it would have happened uh, probably more than a decade ago. Well, because these, these people are not all active believers. Otherwise, you need a church services in Wembley Stadium. You right. Know. Yeah. A lot of these people are not regularly attending worship. What do you think that, I mean, obviously, if, if Labour um, get their way on this, there may be no House of Lords at all. But do you think there is much appetite for specifically removing bishops there for, you know, for sort of toning down the role of religion in British public life? I wish there was. I mean, I, I wish that we were coming up with more moderate pinpoint uh, reforms of the Lords that were addressing issues like that, rather than just having a bunch of people saying change nothing at all and another bunch of people saying just abolish the thing altogether. And I wish that there was more of a sense of its natural limitations. I mean, this country can lay a claim for being one of the most irreligious countries on the face of the earth. You know, just, just on the basis of the pure data, repeated demographic data, that that's what we are. And, and yet we have some of the most backwards constitutional and cultural arrangements around it. And that that just cannot pertain much longer. It, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. I, I really like that one of the most godless places is Carefilly in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I, I, I didn't look into that. So can you actually find out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, atheist hotspots. I mean, I think, I think um, that at a time where everything's becoming really polarized and really binary, I think sort of Protestant Anglican Christianity is not the most attractive proposition because it's quite sort of moderate, quite middle of the road. Um, uh, you know, if you're going to be religious, you might as well be kind of fully Bible-bashing religious. That, so I think that has an effect. Well, that's where I feel very relieved. In many ways, I feel relieved when I look at America because, I mean, obviously they have constitutional separation of church and state, and yet the role in conservative politics of evangelicals is huge. But these, of course, are the kind of evangelicals that as soon as Trump became the nominee, decided that they didn't actually really care about personal morality. You know, it's a very, it's a very strange situation in which you've got, you know, regular people, you know, Sunday worship, basically going vote Republican. Like, it's a very... Yeah, the, the connection between religious and religion and politics there is pretty scary. But yeah. again, the overall it's led to a lot of the of, abortion debate yeah. as well. But again, the overall sort of percentages of people who identify as strongly Christian are declining in the U.S. as well. And it's important to say that the percentage of the communities, I guess, that you would expect to be strongly Muslim in this country is also declining. So. You know, the, those communities are getting larger. So in terms mm. of absolute number, they may be going up. But in terms of the percentage of people who feel very strongly religious within the, those communities, that is also going down. Rachel, the census um, shows an increasingly multicultural nation. Do you, is that reflected in politics? Like, How diverse is the commons relative to the general population? Um, I think it's about... 10% of um, MPs in the House of Commons are from a, a black and minority ethnic background, which, you know, is, is not as much as most people think it is. Um, I think all parties kind of know that they have to improve that um, when they go about selecting candidates. I know it's something that the Labour Party is thinking about, in particularly concerned that they, they don't have enough candidates who are, are black men. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, the House of Commons could be a lot more, a lot more diverse. Um, I think it's only the Lib Party who's got about 50-50 in terms of um, male-female, for example. Similarly, like um, the Conservative Party rather is 75-25 um, when it comes to male-female. But it's, yeah, it's it, uh, no, it does not represent the, the population at large. Because there is that curious thing, which is obviously very annoying to Labour, um, is, that, is that Labour is more diverse you know, sort of on, on, on the benches, you know, when you, you drill down. And yet, when it comes to leaders and prime ministers, the yeah. Tory party just seems to get there first, even though that's not mm. representative. Mm. I mean, do you, do you think that that has been, I mean, obviously things are not going well uh, for Rishi Sunak, but do you think that, that we would, maybe even more in hindsight, that that is a significant milestone? It is a big deal. It is a massive yeah. big deal. I think everyone's acknowledged that, though. But I think you're right. I think you're right. In hindsight, we'll probably look back and think, you know, there there was a, mi a milestone that people could actually pinpoint and celebrate. Yeah. Um, Alex, were you a, a little taken aback, as I was, by the the kind of Enoch Powellite reaction <laughs> to the fact that certain um, that certain cities have yeah. a majority? They really lost their head. I mean, the moment you unpack statements like that. Um, you begin to ask, so how would you propose we um, control where people go to live and 
with whom they have a relationship and how many children they have with that person. I mean, the moment you begin to unpack it, you get into racial purity stuff that is just utterly disturbing. Well, this is... And, these... fund- and fundamentally unconservative. Well. And fundamentally, yes. I mean, this is... They're all the big libertarians, and yet they want what? I mean, what exactly are they asking for? They got the points-based system, immigration system, that they so wanted... Are they suggesting we should give more points to white people or fewer po- points to people of color? The whole, their whole shtick was that they wanted a system that's entirely meritocratic. You know, there's this thing, where, okay, so it's the concentration, is it, that bothers them? And therefore, presumably, they just think that the, 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 the sort of the villages of England should become more diverse and that they should be more spread out. It's, it's sort of like, well, what's the thing that you are actually saying? I mean, we know it's... We know the thing they're actually saying, yeah. of course. That's the th- I mean, and they've been saying it quite openly for quite a long time, you know, and all that goes with that, that white women should have more children, that, mm-hmm. you know, we should somehow control the population, that people should be forced to acclimatize to a different culture, that multiculturalism is a great evil. You know, this yeah. is all the stuff they've been saying for all this time. They're also selling just an, the idea, an idea of Britain that, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist and no one would want if it did. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but it's this kind of like idealized once upon a time thing. Absolutely. That, and, and a lot of it is these are just like really cynical interventions. I, I, I often wonder if some of the people advancing these positions really believe them or if they just think it's somehow, you know, big and clever to get into some kind of cultural debate over everything. It, it was really it was really refreshing to hear a young person of colour, I think on Politics Live it was, explain that the the pace of change might feel very fast to a sort of middle-aged or older mm. white man, but the pace of change feels really slow to young people of colour, to women, <laughs> to gay people, you know. You, so somewhere in there... Yeah. There may be a happy me- medium, but we cannot let the narrative totally dominate that, that everything is changing too fast. Ian, I seem to remember that some of these people, um, a few, you know, say a decade ago, were talking about the exponential rise in the in the Muslim population, and that was meant to be threat, which hasn't. I mean, it has gone up, but not obviously the sort of numbers that they they were sort of worried about. So is this almost their kind of have they been forced back onto the ground of Basically, skin color. Yeah, I think rather than sort of rather than sort of a threat to our way of life, it's basically just don't don't like. It's hard to work out how much of it is cynicism and how much of it is just revealing what's actually like all the broken wiring in your head. Because to a certain extent, I mean, Muslim, you know, had a different connotation to it even ten years ago, right? I mean, it was the the great threat to Western values and society, you know, in that kind of war on terror era. Now that's much less the case in the manner in which it's spoken about. And yet, so you could say, oh, they're just being cynical and jumping for whatever they think is the most evocative manner of describing it. However, that's not the impression I got today. You just sort of thought like, oh, you really are just saying the quiet part out loud all of a sudden. Like suddenly Mm, they just kept on using the word white. If you're pro-immigration, you've had years of being told, and often rightly, it's not racist to be anti-immigration and people have all the legitimate concerns and the blah, 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 blah. And you're like, yes, fine, I get it. And I'm sure that's absolutely fucking true. However, what's fascinating about watching them over the last couple of days is you're like, 
oh no, but actually it turns out you are fucking racists, right? Because as you just said some racist shit just now. It's not me, it's definitely you. <laughs> uh, Alex, there's one other thing that, that, that is always interesting, I think, in the census, which is where the, um, the most spoken languages and the most yeah. common non-UK identity and... Uh, when you sound like the old top 40 rundown, mm-hmm. Romanian is now the third most spoken language. Oh, that's um, interesting. And formerly the 16th most common non-UK identity is now the second, behind only Polish. Mm. Um, what, like, what, I, why, why, is, why is this? Because it's newer. It's as simple as that. Um, because that uh, wave of migration is slightly newer. And so if you um, if you look at the way the questions are asked on the census, right. I don't know if you've ever, ever kind of fully filled it out. I remember that it asks, what's the main language you speak at home? I mean, that's how you determine it. And so if you ask, you know, Polish people 20 years ago that had just migrated from Poland, oh, right. of course they would speak mainly Polish at yeah, home. Yeah. But as they, um, you know, live in this country for two decades, they have children that were born in this country and educated in this country. That language shifts. Well, I'm, I'm half Polish, so I'm very pleased that my, that my people are still holding strong in the top spots. <laughs> my favourite stat was that the fastest growing religion is shamanism. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and but also the complete collapse of Jedi Knights. <laughs> I know. I, I, I mean, saw I, that coming. I, yeah, I don't know because I thought that was, that one really had legs and was a very strong it's, and sincere belief system. I think it's Disney Plus trying to expand the universe. People really kicked back against that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what what's the what's the deal with shamanism? Absolutely not. <laughs> You're not going to try trying it out just for. Uh, um, just to relate to the British people. There's, there's, um, um, there's always amazing stuff in the census. Does anyone else, like, really, really enjoy filling out the census? It's like my, it's like my decade treat. Whenever it comes in, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I'm going to fill out the census. Tonight. The missus was, like, looking at me like, what is the fucking matter with you? You see, oh, it's just so enjoyable to think everyone's filling out the same form at the same time, and we're going to have really decent, comprehensive data on what's going on. It's, like, one, one of the highlights of my year when it comes I find it sends me into um, sort of existential crises of various (laughs) sorts. Some of the questions are like, I don't know. I don't don't feel exclusively one thing. Yeah, no, they had to badger me to, to get it completed. I wasn't. I wonder how how many other people actually felt like that as well. Could you, you get, get you, you someone coming and actually sit down with you? Cause... I got like a knock on the door saying, yeah, yeah, "Like, yeah. when are you going to get this done, Miss?" Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, but I wonder if a lot of people kind of felt like that because you get asked for your data all the time now. You know, mm. you go to a pub and go try to get on the Wi-Fi, and they're like, "Where do you live?" <laughs> 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 Before we go, let's take a quick look at stories that need a bit more attention in Under the Radar. Um, Ian. So there's an interesting story in the FT yesterday about um, proposals from Sunak, not unveiled yet, might not happen, but probably will, um, to, well, they call it Big Bang 2.0. I swear to Christ, I've heard fucking like five times we've heard Big Bang 2.0 about reform of the city. This is the fifth one. They also, of course, call it a Brexit benefit. And of course, it has nothing to fucking do with Brexit. 
But the idea itself is quite striking and I think quite troubling, which is to take down the wall between investment and, and, and commercial banks. So, I mean, that wall is, is a classic throughout our history. In fact, you and I talked about it in the neoliberalism episode of, of Origin Story. You get sort of Glass Spiegel Act in the US after the Wall Street crash. And here we had it after the financial crash because you had these sort of consumer facing banks going all in on securities and because you had the investment banks offering the mortgages that they later packaged up into the securities. That kind of whirling financial chaos that you get when you just let these guys do whatever they like. Well, it looks like we're very, very keen on that happening again in the next 20 or 30 years because we're going to take down all of the regulatory walls, apparently, that we put up after that period. So it was just one of those like small financial stories that you're like, with grim despair, you think, I've got a horrible feeling that I'm going to have to write about this in a book as the lead up to the disaster that hits us in 2040, if I survive that long, which at the current rate of political change, I might not. <laughs> okay. Mine is a, is a very quick one. I mean, it's not that under the radar. I just find it absolutely mind boggling that um, there are Jewish conservatives who have supported Trump through thick and thin and and various anti-Semitic statements Mainly thick. approval for, <laughs> for Nazis. Um, but now they're very angry because um, this is a very serious political story that Kanye West turned up uh, <laughs> with the Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes. And this is apparently the last straw. So interesting in, <laughs> interesting in two ways. One, that Kanye West has now hired Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos in a kind of like... Did he hire Milo? Yes, that's his, that. that's his oh. campaign advisor for his very serious campaign oh. for the White House. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So this seems like the kind of alt-right reunion tour. Mm. But also just the idea that there are people who are, who are only now outraged by Trump because there's that whole thing where you divide it up and they would have been very good for Israel despite all of his kind of anti-Semitic associations, but this is the last straw. Mm. And you just go, I really feel like I don't have a sympathy for anybody now who is who has only now got their last straw with Trump. Um, Alex? Uh, so mine is um, the Horniman Museum returning the artworks broadly referred to as the Benin Bronzes to the Nigerian Commission because I think the the debate about returning... Um, stuff to countries that were basically looted um, is a really live one. And a museum making a chink in that is a real crack in that, making the decision to return that. It will really reignite all the talk about the Parthenon marbles and all of that. Um, I went to the British Museum last weekend to see the hieroglyphs um, exhibition and I was shocked, even though I know about it, I was shocked by how it underlined this um, idea that 100 to 150 years ago, people went there for personal glory, basically. Yeah. They would erase the contribution of local archaeologists, of Arabic scholars who could translate hieroglyphs a thousand years before yeah. us and then just go into a battle with the French mission and the Danish mission as to who would claim ownership of this stuff. It's just extraordinary this is absolutely... that 100 years later, we haven't changed our attitude effectively museum-wide on this issue, when most museums would benefit from sort of travelling collections and enhanced loans. It could be done very well. It could also be done very badly. And it's sort of interesting seeing how different museums are yeah. uh, adapting to that. 
And it was amazing also that they had a very good casts of things there that you could actually touch because they're just casts of oh, things. Okay. And I just think, how much better would exhibitions be if there was an exchange of casts that you could actually feel and touch? And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And thank you so much to Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Alex. My pleasure. And our guest, Rachel. Thank you. Now stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers after our theme song Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a thank you to some of our generous supporters. Hello from me to Chris White, Arthur Pint, Caroline De Groot, Andy Tilda, Kathy Bourne, Timbuktu, Lynn Baird and Sandy K. Baiju. A big shout from me to Shane Walsh, Amy Shannon, Mawusi, Narani Rutra Rajan, Ben Pennin, Aaron Walker, Matthew Boardman, and Roger Hyam. And thanks for me to Amy Rowe, Alison Brown, Will Bone, Hugh Wilkinson, Margaret Jordan, Alex Rosenberg, Michael Hughes, and Sarah Simmons. See you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandre and Ian Dunt. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, Producers for Alex Reese and Jack Gerberton. With assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor Andrew Harrison. And oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. The team at Podmasters are assembling after this very recording for the annual Christmas party. <laughs> this is an unusually harmonious and chilled out workplace, it says here. <laughs> I've been asked to say. I've been asked to say. But the Christmas too can go awry, especially if your organisation, for example, the Conservative Party, has not had the best year. Are these events a unique time to bond and bury the hatchet or forced fun with the potential for disaster? Uh, now, Rachel, I do not get invited to uh, Westminster parties, therefore I pretend I would not go. Um, like, what are they What are they like? Are there, are there good ones? Are there ones that you actively look forward to? Um, well, I guess what I could sort of provide a bit of insight on is the, the Downing Street Christmas party, which is like you get invited by the PM to come in for like, you know, it's usually limited to about an hour and a half where PM comes on and gives a sort of short passive-aggressive speech to all of the journalists gathered. <laughs> and that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going, so thank you for listening and see you next week.